What up, Oasis people? I am uh, so glad to be with you. And I want us to start actually with a recap from last week. So if you weren't here, we started a brand new series called Green Pastures. We're going to be walking through Psalm 23 last week, this week, and next week. So we're right in the heart of it. And so we have to remember that last week we started talking about this and looking at this metaphor that we're going to continue tonight, where God is a shepherd and therefore we are sheep. And in that, we saw last week how God leads, he refreshes, he guides, he protects. He does all of these things for his name's sake. It's beautiful. If you missed it, go back, check it out. There's also a going deeper thing that we put out on YouTube or Instagram. If you ever want to check out a little bit more extra content from the message, you can go do that. But in last week, the metaphor that was established of God as a shepherd and us as sheep, it gets continued through the rest of the psalm. And so tonight we are only doing verse 4. But it will take us all night to capture it because it's such a beautiful piece of scripture. And in that, it actually starts in a kind of dark place. Like literally, it starts in the dark valley. And I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been terrified? And I'm not talking just like scared. I mean like downright petrified. Like shaken in your boots. Like deep in your soul. You're like so terrified, scared. Maybe you have. I, I had this fear growing up. It was pretty irrational, but I was afraid of storms. Anybody else have a similar fear? Maybe some people are like right now, it's like, yep, still, <laughs> yeah, I feel that. But like, as a kid, I was like petrified of storms. I was homeless last week for Thanksgiving and I brought this up to my family to get some more of their thoughts from, because I only have my own perspective. And my sister just started laughing at me because she told this story of if I would see a one, a gray cloud in the sky, I would shut every blind in the whole house. <laughs> like I could be downstairs in my bedroom and it doesn't matter that the blinds are closed there. The blinds need to be closed upstairs in my parents' bedroom just in case I walk by through the hallway and see a second cloud outside. Like I was terrified of storms. And so late in elementary school, we would have a babysitter, which I, I mean, I was 10. Did I really need a babysitter? She kind of just drove me to the pool and then she would sleep on the couch. But she, she would watch us and this was like the peak of my terrified of storms phase. Like there was never a moment where I was stuck in a storm. There was no t tornado. There was no hailstorm. There was nothing I actually validated my fear. I was just scared. So she was there with us and every single time that summer, I swear it was the worst summer ever for storms. Every single time I saw clouds in the sky, I started to cry. <laughs> I would lose my mind as a 10 year old, just bawling, completely a mess, a wreck for the rest of the day, anytime there was a storm. And I had this thing that I would do every single time I started to fall apart because a storm was rolling in. I would call my mom. <laughs> my mom actually told my babysitter, do not let him call me anymore because <laughs> it happened so often. Every single time, like I'd hear a crack of thunder, I was instantly grabbing the home phone, dialing my mom's work number. Like I, 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 every single time a storm rolled in and the panic set in and the fear happened, I would call my mom. And somehow, somehow just hearing her voice would calm me. Like my mom's awesome, but she does not control the storm, right? My mom had no power to take away the clouds, to lessen the thunder, 
to lighten the rain. No, no, no. She had no power over any of that. But every single time I called, I'd beg her, please come home. Come home, come home. Please drive through the storm to come save me here sitting in our basement. I, I would panic because all I wanted was her presence. And somehow her presence, though it didn't change anything about my situation, it brought me peace. And that's where we're going to look at the psalm tonight. Because in a similar way, Psalm 23 shows us how God's presence in the hard stuff changes everything. I titled tonight's sermon, uh, The Shepherd in the Struggle. Because here in Psalm 23, verse 4, it will show us God not outside the struggle, not God dealing with the struggle, but God in the struggle. In the midst of the dark valley, he is there. And I don't want us to be ignorant so I don't want to like scare you or like put a really big bummer on the night to start. But the storms, the hard stuff, the struggle, it's coming. Maybe for you, it's not even a far off reality, but you're in it. You're in the dark valley that the psalm will talk about. You're experiencing the sickness. Your bank account is empty. Your friends are gone. Your romantic life is negligent. Neg- negligent. That's the right word. Everything is falling apart and you feel like you are in the darkest valley right now. Maybe you're there. If so, Psalm 23 has something for you tonight. Others of us, maybe we've been in the dark valley. This last semester, this last year, this last season, it has been rough. It's been hard and you've been walking through it and grinding through it. And now you finally see a light at the end of the tunnel And for you, I think Psalm 23 has something for you tonight. Otherwise, if you're not one of those two, the chances are is in the future you will walk into a dark valley. Jesus in John 16, 33 tells us in this world you will have trouble. It's a promise he made for his followers. So tonight, if you sit in this room as a follower, if you were a person on this earth, trouble and hardship and suffering, it awaits you. And so whether you're in it coming out of it or going into it. The dark valley is something we all will experience. And because of that, I want us to learn from Psalm 23. Because it is a word here that will encourage you in the presence and protection of your Savior. So Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I want to pray quick. Father, thank you for Psalm 23, for the journey of last week, for the text tonight, and for what will come in the future. I pray that you would meet us here in this single verse, speaking deeply to our souls and nourishing us where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read to you one more time. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right away, David is already reminding us of the inevitability. I practiced that word all week. The inevitability of hardship. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, it's not even if I walk through, or maybe one day I will, or or if it happens, it's no, even though, even though I'm presently walking through the darkest valley, and he is reminding us of our scenario here on this world, that even though I do walk through the darkest valley, even though I will walk through the darkest valley, or even though I have walked through the darkest valley, he says, I will fear no evil. And he's preparing us 
In the same way, Jesus in Matthew 24 is talking to his disciples about the end times. If you've read this passage of scripture, I will point you to another pastor to answer all your questions. Because it's so nuanced and it's crazy and he's making predictions and prophecies and everybody's like, has this happened? Has this not happened? And it's highly debated. But one thing we know for sure, it is a pretty downright depressing passage. Because he's talking about the end times. And as he's telling his disciples, he says this to them. He says, you'll be persecuted, executed, and hated by all nations. People will leave the faith, betray the faith, and hate one another. But he finishes and he says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Almost none of that is good news. Death, suffering, hardship, hatred, bitterness. He talks about all these people who will leave the faith. But yet in the midst of it, there's this glimmer of hope. Because there are some who because of this word of preparation, because of this word of awareness, they will stand firm to the end. And so Jesus, he doesn't say this so that we freeze in fear, but rather he tells us this so that we can be prepared for when it comes. In the same way David is saying, even though I walk through the valley, even though this life will bring hardship and it will bring suffering and it will bring struggle, even though I will not fear. I want us to connect back to last week again because we finished last week, if you can remember, in verse three where it talks about the right paths. We debated if it was righteous or right, but either way, it talks about the right path. This idea that God is leading us where we need to go. But I find it so wild and fascinating that we're in this conversation talking about the right path and instantly David jumps into the darkest valley. Right, he's, he's describing this place for us where there's green pastures, quiet waters, refreshment, perfect path. Like there's this mountaintop he is describing that is glorious. And instantly he jumps into the next verse and is describing the darkest valley. And my temptation, maybe it's the same for you, is to say there's a disconnect there. That the right, va- the right path can't have anything to do with the dark valley. That David in his writing is, has turned the new leaf, he's flipped the page, he started another chapter. But what if he hasn't? What if in the craziness of the way God oftentimes works, what if the right paths go through the dark valleys? What if the right paths involve hardship? What if the right paths involve suffering? What if the right paths aren't marked by sunshine and smiles all the time? What if the right paths are through the dark valleys. What would that tell you about your shepherd? What would that mean about you following him? To remind you, David was a shepherd. He actually watched over a flock of sheep. And if you reference back to the book I've been talking about through the series, it's by Philip Keller. And he is a shepherd who became a pastor, which blows my mind. But he wrote this book all about Psalm 23. And if we're trying to understand who David was and how he lived, this book is a great resource to us. And he describes for me, which I'll relate to you, how a shepherd leads his flock of sheep on an annual trek, that they never stayed in one place for the whole year, but rather there was this cycle that they would do to move the sheep around, to find new pastures, and to have, have this annual cycle. So in late springtime, the, sh- the sheep would have consumed all the grass at the base of the mountains that they typically lived that they got out of winter and they survived and the grass has sprung up in the springtime. And so they've eaten all that and now the shepherd must lead them to the table, which is at the top of the mountain, this flat area 
that as the snow has melted over the course of the summer, the, fl- the, the, the flush grass has sprung up. There's this beautiful green pasture that he is leading them to at the top of the mountain. And this would happen every single summertime. But sheep didn't just go straight up the side of the mountain. No, he, the shepherd would lead them through the valleys, trying to safely maneuver to the top. And it was in these valleys where there was hardship. But the fact that we have to understand is in order for them to get to the place of blessing, they had to walk through the place of hardship. The valleys, they were essential to finding future rest. They've got a picture up there for you that they'll put up. But the valleys, they were dark and dangerous. This is a beautiful picture. I was trying to find one that's a little bit more, more dark, but it'll do the trick. So here is, is a typical valley, we'll say. And I'm telling you they were dark and dangerous because you can see the cliff walls on each side. That if you've ever been to southern Utah, there's a national park called uh, Zion, which has this hike called uh, the Narrows. And I went there a couple of years ago with some buddies, and it is amazing. It's the perfect uh, example of what uh, David is talking about here. Because the cliffs on both sides are so straight up. They're so close together that there is only about a half hour of sunlight at about perfect noon where the light will hit the water at the bottom. And so here you can see there's cliff edges on both sides where it would narrow the amount of sunlight that would reach the valley. And so they're dark. But not only are they dark, they're dangerous. You can see in this picture here that there is all these rock juttings out or little caves. You can kind of see them towards the top on that left side. And those are specific for us to notice because it's in these places of rock formations or caves that the predators of the sheep would, would den down. It's where they would live. So as the shepherd leads his flock through the valley, it is actually the most dangerous place they can be. It's in the bottom of the valley where the enemy is closest. The, 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 are the, the sheep are at the bottom walking with their shepherd while wolves and lions and bears look down on what they hope is lunch. The enemy is right on top of them. Yet it's in these same places in that valley Not only is the enemy closest, but so is the shepherd. Instead of the sheep spreading out over the countryside where they would have just grazed on their own, they are forced into this tiny channel in which they will try to reach the next pasture. And it's in that place they are right alongside the shepherd. So David says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The enemy is close but God is right there with them. Our instinct, though, is to reject the dark valleys. (laughs) I don't know many people out there who like the dark valleys. The Amplified Translation of the Bible translates this, uh, the sunless valleys. That hit home for me this last couple of weeks. You know, because I can do the cold, but I cannot do the cold and the dark. (laughs) When it is 4.30 and it is dark outside, (laughs) my soul dies a little bit. And so this, that hit for me, this idea of the sunless valley, the darkest valley, this place nobody chooses to go. No one wants to lose a loved one. No one wants to suffer from sickness. No one wants to be rejected in a relationship. It's in those places where the enemy feels right on top of us. It's like the adversary is right there whispering us lies as we walk through this hardship. 
but it is also in those same places, the hardest places of life, that God is most near. David says, the darkest valley. The darkest. God is with you in every single moment, but the darkest valleys, he's there. The deepest depression. The heaviest grief. The saddest loss. The nastiest relationship. The evilest thoughts. The worst sickness. God is right there in the darkest valley. He is walking with you. He is the shepherd in the struggle. And that's the reason that the dark valleys might be a part of the, the right paths. Not because God is back there reveling in the fact that we are suffering as his people. But God desires, he longs for our presence with him. He longs for us to want him and to need him. And because of that, he may lead you through the dark valley. Somehow, some way, the dark valley, it draws us into the arms of God. It's in that place where it's dark, damp, cold, dangerous where the father is standing there with arms wide open, waiting for a tender embrace. He's standing there wanting to be your shepherd, to grab your hand and to lead you through the struggle. He is so close to you. Psalm 34, 18 says it like this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. In my life, I've been pretty lucky and I haven't had to do a ton of suffering. Uh, it's still early, unless the Lord takes me, but I haven't had to do that much suffering, but about two years ago, I lost what was one of my closest friends to suicide. It was two years ago in January, um, and I actually was set to preach that night about God's goodness. So I was upstairs in a classroom like I typically do on a Sunday afternoon when I received the call to know that my friend had passed away. And I fell apart. I mean, I sat in this chair over here and I eventually came up and I preached this message on God's goodness because I felt like it was the right thing to do. But my temptation tonight, even as I tell you about the darkest valley in God's presence, is to skip over what happened in the months following that. I would love to stand up here and tell you about every single thing God has worked for his good out of that dark valley. But before I got to that place, the enemy was right in my face. It was in those weeks where I would sit in the chairs like you guys do, having lost one of my closest friends because he took his own life, and the words up on the screen, God, you're so good, and I couldn't sing them. Not for weeks, <laughs> to be honest, probably not for months. I showed up to my small group, and they would ask me to contribute and for weeks I had nothing to give. I would go to pray because I was a pastor and I had suffered this loss and I was in this dark valley but I would go to pray and every single time I got on my knees I was reminded of how many times I prayed for my, my friend, my brother and God seemingly didn't answer my prayer. Daily, I had a notification on my phone to pray for him and now he was gone. And I was in the darkest valley of my entire life. And the enemy was right there. Whispering the lies. Doing exactly what he does. Trying to steal, kill, and destroy any hope I had. And it took me a while. 
but I got to this place through God's grace, through friends, through community, through, through prayer, through his spirit, where I could begin to worship again. I could start to pray again. I could start to be in community again. I could start to do all the things that the Lord had called me to do. But it was only when I started to recognize his presence with me and started to push away the enemy who was sitting right there. He was close, but the Lord was closer. And I would never choose to walk through that again. I don't even know, a lot of times, I don't even know if I can say I'm grateful for it but in a lot of ways I understand it. I understand what it did in me because it was in that valley my relationship with God was strengthened. Yeah, it was tested, but it was also refined. I came out of the other side of that valley a better Jesus follower, a better Christian, and I think a better pastor because of the shepherd's presence in leading me through it. While the dark valleys are inevitable and they can be used for good, we also must recognize that they are not forever. David says, I walk through the darkest valley. He doesn't say, even though I camp in, even though I sit in, even though I hold on to, even though I live in. No, no, no. David says, even though I walk through the darkest valley. And what he's teaching us there is there's a progression to what we're supposed to do in the dark valley. There's something we, we're supposed to continue to move on. We're not supposed to just sit in, in the hardship, sit in the brokenness. That it's not a finite reality for us. That David, through God's presence, is teaching us there is a process in which we move through the dark valley. It is a part of the journey, but it is not your whole journey. I want to hammer this home. While David is journeying through hardship, why is he not afraid? While David is in the darkest valley, scholars will debate on exactly when this was written, but there's a chance that he, he started to, to prose on this idea when he was being chased by Saul out in the wilderness, away from community, family, in a future. He is in the middle of nowhere, fearing for his life. And he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with him. It seems too simple to be true, but David is fearless in the valley because God is with him. It's that simple. He trusts and knows God in the midst of the valley. And because I'm a kind of Bible nerd, I noticed something that I expect pretty much none of you to notice. So when you look up here, one of the things I like to do is I spend way too much time reading it and circling it and making lines and whatever things. And what you maybe didn't notice because you're not looking at all four verses is actually in verse four, David has changed the pronouns he uses for God. That in verse one and through three, he refers to him as he. He leads, he guides, he refreshes for his namesake. But up here, David has said, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear not evil for you. For you are with me. And what's important about that is it's almost like David is having this conversation with us, telling us about who God is when God has opened the door and joined the conversation. It's almost like he's sitting here talking about like, God is this and he is this and he is this. And he's like, well, and you are. And he begins to talk to God. That he initially invited us into Psalm 23 telling us about who God was. Now he's having this conversation with God 
and we just get to be privy to it. We just get to look and see how David talks to his heavenly father, how he talks to the shepherd. And what's so key about that is tonight we're recognizing that everything in Psalm 23 verse 4 is about God's presence. It's the shepherd in the struggle. And the importance of God's presence is even suggested in the pronouns David used. In the hardship, God is not someone David just talks about. No, David talks about God as someone who is near to him, relational to him, connected to him. Some of us, uh, we've gotten really good at talking about God. We're really good at sitting in groups or sitting across coffee, and we've gotten really good at telling other people about who God is. But all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the darkest valley, and we've got no relationship with him. We struggle, and we find ourselves in the loss, in the hardship, and in the pain, and everything we knew about God isn't translating to our relationship with God. Maybe it's because we never cultivated a life of prayer. We never sat with him in his word and learned to hear his voice. We didn't learn to walk with his spirit. We haven't lived in community studying scripture together. We haven't prayed alongside others. We haven't confessed. I don't know what it is, but sometimes we get all this head knowledge about who God is, but we've never actually known God. And the struggle is the suffering, the hardship, it's coming. And in the valley, it's a really hard time to try to figure out where God is. If you think back to the darkness of it, as a sheep was in the dark valley where there was maybe only an hour or so of sunlight, true sunlight a day, it was hard for the sheep to identify where the shepherd was. It was dark. But the sheep, while in the green pastures, while near the, the quiet waters, while on the right paths, the sheep had learned to trust the shepherd. He clung to this idea. The sheep learned this idea that the shepherd was near. And so when they got in the dark valley and things started to swirl and it was cold and dark and damp and they couldn't exactly see the shepherd and they didn't know exactly where they were going, it was in that place they fell back on their faith and back on their trust that the shepherd is near. So for us, it translates. And when we're in the green pastures, in the good places, by the quiet waters, in the flourishing right now, Maybe you're in a good spot. This is not the time for you to take a break and sit back and just relax. It's a time for you to lean in. It's going to be the easiest it's ever been to learn who God is, to learn to trust him, to learn to love him, to learn to walk with him. And then when you find yourself in the dark valley, you can fall back on this foundation of faith and trust that he is there. It's not impossible to find God and to trust God while in the valley. A lot of people do it but it's not ideal. And so as people, I'm encouraging us, just, just find him in the green pastures. I want to read you verse four again, just because it's been a second since we saw it, and I'm going to flip a little bit of how we're talking about God. So verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the darkest valley, God is not only present but he is also prepared. A shepherd didn't usually carry a cart or many belongings, and so they would only carry probably a handful of things. And one of those things that they would carry is a rod. And the rod is important because the shepherd used the rod to protect and to correct the sheep. 
It looks something like this. I mean, this was this closes my backsliding glass door so that you guys know what I mean. So don't break into my house right now. It's unlocked. But so this would have been something like a rod. It, it, chances are it probably would have swelled at the end, so it was a little bit top heavy. But they would have carried this around in their right hand as an extension of, of who they are and how they shepherded. And the first reason they would have carried it was to protect. That they didn't have guns or bows and arrows, and so what they had was a stick. They called it a rod. And they defended their flock with this rod. And they protected their sheep with a simple rod. But to them, it wasn't just a stick, like I probably couldn't do much with this. To them, it was a lethal weapon. That from the youngest of ages, shepherds would train with a rod like this, learning how to strike a predator so that it hit just in the right spot on the skull so they could kill something. That sounds crazy to us, but David in 1 Samuel 17 talks about how he killed not only just a lion, but a bear with a rod. The Lord provided for his shepherds with something as simple as a stick. And so they would hit it, hit an animal, and protect their sheep. But they also protected it, not just by swinging it, but they would also throw it. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) They would throw it. And they trained, again, by throwing the rod, end over end, spinning it, so that it would hit an animal just perfectly in order to severely injure it or kill it. And it was something from the youngest of ages, they learned how to throw a simple stick like this in order to protect the flock. Not only did they use it to protect, but they also used it to correct. And so sheep are dumb. We talked about this. We've been there. Sheep will go away from the pack all the time. They have almost no instinct to stay with the rest of their pack. They love to wander. And so when a shepherd from the back of the flock or from the middle of the flock might see a sheep start to to veer off in the wrong direction, it wouldn't call its name like, hi, here, Baba, come back. No, no, no. He would throw his rod, hitting the area in front of the, the sheep, scaring it back to the flock. He was correcting it. Otherwise, sheep, again, would eat anything. Steve told this story this morning. It was so sad about how one of his kids' sheep ate a ton of rabbit poop and died. But there was this plant that was growing in the valleys and on the mountaintops that the shepherd had to lead through. And it was this white flower. And it was poisonous to sheep. But they would eat it because they had no idea what, was, what, what it was. And when they would approach a pack of this white flower in the valley, the shepherd would throw his rock or his rod, hitting the pack of flowers, scaring the sheep away. Again, he was protecting and he was correcting with the rod. And God, in the clearest way we can see it, from commentary work, from scholars, from other preachers, God as the shepherd uses his word as a rod to protect and to correct us. In Matthew 4, Jesus is in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He is at this place of of utter dependence on his heavenly father and Satan shows up and face to face they go at it. Satan keeps throwing all of these temptations and accusations at Jesus and every single time, all three times that Satan does that, Jesus responds with God's word. He's protecting himself with God's word. He quotes Deuteronomy of all books. For you, 1 Peter 5, 8 tells you the enemy, he, ro- he prowls around like a lion waiting to attack you. And so we find ourselves just scrolling on TikTok when a video comes up that's tempting you to lust, to compare, to judge. Whatever the sin is, the video just pops up and the enemy, he is using that girl or that guy on your screen to tempt you. 
He's been waiting for this moment, waiting like a lion, waiting to jump and to be right there in the midst of just what was an ordinary moment that you had in between classes or you're taking a break at work. And as you look at that person on a screen, we've been there before, we know we shouldn't, but somehow he's still prowling. It's in those moments, if it's maybe lust, an example would be God's word has got you. Matthew 5, 28. It tells us in the same way, but I tell you, anyone who looks on another person lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. God's word protects. It's like sheep. We're going to go eat that. We're going to go wander off. We're going to go get ourselves in trouble and do the thing we're not supposed to. And God's word, it protects. But God's word, it also corrects. 2 Timothy 3, 16, for God's word is, uh, for the scripture is God breathed. And is therefore useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. That's God's word. It's describing it to you, telling you it is meant to protect you. It's meant to correct you. God's word is meant to guide us. He has a better way. So before you and I go our own way again and we turn away from God and we do the thing we're not meant to do yet again, let us be reminded that God's word is there to correct and protect Another thing the shepherd carried was a staff. I got this on Amazon, shout out. It was a staff, and it was unique to a shepherd. That other people, they would carry a walking pole, but what made it unique to the shepherd is they would use it to save and direct the sheep. And one of the reasons they used it to save and direct the sheep was because of this hook on the top. So Mason, I'm just, no, I'm just playing. Did that be the pastor going viral who's hooking people in the crowd? <laughs> no, they would take this and they would hook the sheep's neck and they would pull them to safely. Again, can I remind you, sheep, dumb. <laughs> so when they're in the valley and they're walking through the, the, the place, they had a tendency to maybe fall in the creek. And so it became, again, an extension of the shepherd's arm to reach into the creek, to grab the sheep by its neck and to save it. Otherwise, they would get too close to a cliff's edge, again, reaching out, grabbing the sheep and pulling it back to safety. Sometimes it was even as simple as a sheep would wander into a thicket of bushes trying to get yet another bite of grass and get so stuck in its wool that it can't get out. The shepherd with his staff would reach in, hook the sheep's neck, and pull it to safety. Not only would they use it just to to guide, to save, but they would also use it to direct. That sheep we talked about last week, they have a, a, there's like a top sheep, like a top dog sheep, and they would do this budding order thing to try to get to the top. But because there was a top sheep, the rest of the flock would typically follow that one sheep. And so if the the shepherd was trying to direct the the flock along a certain valley, the way he would do so would not be to try and navigate the whole entire flock, but rather he would take his staff and just gently on one side of the sheep push the way it's meant to go. So if it wanted to turn to the the left, it would push on the right hip, leading the, the, the lead sheep left, directing the whole flock. Vice versa, if it wanted it to go right, it would push on the left hip, leading it right. The staff was something that the shepherd would use to save and to direct the flock. As far as we know, the, the f- forefront way that scholars and, and other preachers and pastors will talk about God when it comes to the staff is God as a shepherd uses his spirit to save and to direct us. Now that word save can be triggering for people, so let me clarify. You are only saved by the blood of Jesus. You are only saved by the work of the cross. 
You are saved first and foremost through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But the Holy Spirit has a role to play there. Not only does he soften our hearts, but he continues to help us as we live out our salvation. John 16, 8 through 9. It says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Talking about how he comes to convict. Convict is this church word that I'll just give you a quick definition for. But it's synonymous with how the world often talks about guilt. Conviction is when our hearts are burdened by the Holy Spirit to recognize sin. The reason we have a different word for it and oftentimes don't call it guilt is because guilt leads us to this place of shame. This is how could we do that? How could we get stuck there? We'll never overcome that. Conviction leads us to this place of empowerment in the spirit. This is, I know that wasn't right, but God has better for me and he will lead me to better. Sheep, as they got close to the cliff, as they went back to the, to the bush, as they got stuck in that place, the shepherd would reach in, saving the sheep. In the same way, the spirit wants to reach into our lives and guide us away from the things that are dangerous for us. Over the last six weeks, we have had a candy bowl in our house, and I have no self-control. <laughs> so we had Halloween, we have, we have a house, you guys didn't know, but, and so we uh, had a candy bowl, and we didn't have many trick-or-treaters, and so I was left with, like, a lot of Reese's. <laughs> and my wife is so good. She will eat one a week. I will eat 14 a day. <laughs> so every time I open the pantry, the bowl is just there. It's, like, beckoning me. It's, like, eat two, eat six, eat eight. And it's in that moment where the Holy Spirit says, don't do that, Brennan. <laughs> and he's trying to protect me. And that's a silly example, but he's leading me towards health. And we could talk about the other serious things when we open our phones and we go to that website or we see that person and we're prompted to compare or we go to that place and we're tempted to drink too much or we speak about that person and the words just start to come out of our mouth but the Holy Spirit is right there leading us to this place of conviction saying I have something better for you. God's Spirit, it also directs. I'll invite the team up but John 16, 13, Jesus again says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide us into the truth. God's spirit is helpful for leading us as people. We're at this place in life where, again, we make so many big decisions. All of these things that are, that are coming at us so quickly, that are huge and weighty, and we're trying our, our hardest to make all the right decisions, and it's in those moments, God wants to lead you by his spirit. He wants to direct you along the right paths. When I was a senior in high school, I was stressing, stressing about where to go to school. I mean, I tried to make the pros and cons list, but my list was so long of all the things that were weighing on me trying to make this decision that I just got to this point where I was done. Totally and completely done. I was so overwhelmed, so anxious that I grabbed my Bible, and I don't know if I've ever done this since, but I grabbed it and I just hugged it, <laughs> like somehow that would help. But I hugged it and I was like, Lord, I need you to tell me where to go to school. And I kid you not, it was probably the most tangible, if not only really tangible time, I felt the Lord lead me. It was almost like he put his hand on my shoulder and, and led me to SDSU. I can't even describe it to you, but as I sat there in my bedroom, 
with the walls painted burnt orange for Texas and a futon bunk bed. The Lord met me there. And it was almost like he was putting his hand right on my shoulder, right on my hip, saying, go right. By his spirit, he leads. This is the beauty of who God is, that through these, his rod and his staff, along with God's presence, he comforts us. This isn't worldly comfort. Like Jesus isn't leading you to your favorite couch and sweatpants. It's heavenly comfort. Comfort that brings peace. Comfort that brings provision. Comfort that brings God's presence and protection. That's the promise for us here in verse four. In the darkest valley, we don't have to fear. In the hardest situations, God is with you as his children. Whatever you are going through, God is with you. He will protect you. He will correct you. He will save you. He will guide you. That's who he is. The shepherd is with you in the struggle. I want to finish by reading Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me.